Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thank you for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Craig Rupp, founder, CEO at Sabanto, an ag tech company that's raised over $22 million in funding. Craig, thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, thank you, Brett, for having me. Yeah, no problem. So before we begin talking about what you're building there, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Sure. So Craig Rupp here, and I am kind of an enigma. I'm one part farm boy, one part engineer, and one part entrepreneur. I grew up on a farm in Northwest Iowa, uh, corn, soybeans, hogs, and cattle. And uh, when I graduated high school, I decided to become an electrical engineer. I did that and spent the majority of my career in the wireless industry. Then I uh, started starting companies and I started a, a data company in the panhandle of Texas. I started another company writing signal processing algorithms for RF manufacturing test, and I sold that company. Then I started another company, which was, think of data acquisition for agriculture. I took my farm background and engineering background and combined them and created a company called 640 Labs. And that was acquired by Monsanto in 2014. And then from 2014 to 2018, I spent my time at the Climate Corporation, where I decided that I'm going to start Sabanto, and I'm going to take autonomy into agriculture. Wow. And when you were growing up, did you know at some point you would become an entrepreneur? And, and was that a goal of yours or a thought that you had when you were younger? Or, or where did that come from? <laughs> That's a really good question. I had no desire to be an entrepreneur. I never thought I would be an entrepreneur. You know, I wish I could say that I actually have uh, uh, a career plan. I just uh, started at Motorola and then myself and two other guys decided to leave and start a company. And it was always just short-term opportunities. And not once did I ever think that I would ever start a company in my career. I thought when I went to work at Motorola, I mean, this was back in 1989. I thought I was going to work there the rest of my life. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing, man. That's amazing. Yes. How it out. And then you started that first company and it was, I think, 1995 I saw on LinkedIn. Yeah, that was the first company I started was uh, Alliance Technologies Group. And we were no more than guns for hire. We were doing contracting and consulting, all engineering, software development, hardware development, and mostly around RF, radio frequency. Mm. Got it. Super interesting. Very yeah. cool. Now, two questions we'd like to ask just to better understand what makes you pick as a founder. First one is, what CEO do you admire and, and what do you admire about them? The best CEO that I know, that I personally know and have worked for, is James Trichard, Dr. T, as he's referred to. He was the CEO of National Instruments. He started that company and ran it for, gosh, 30, 40 years. National Instruments is a very entrepreneurial company. I've never seen a company like it. It was, you know, the entire, the entire organization, they really did a lot of innovation. And he had a culture in the company that was, very entrepreneurial. 
And, you know, fact is, it's the longest company I have ever worked for. I worked there nine years and I just admired his style. He was very technical. He was very involved. You would go to lunch and sit down at a table by yourself and and he would sit down across from you and eat lunch with you. And what are you working on, Craig? How's that going? And he was he was very involved with everyone in the company and everyone loved him. Wow. That's an entrepreneur, a CEO I've not heard of. So I appreciate you bringing someone unique. Most people come yep. on and say Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or Steve Jobs. So it's always refreshing to hear someone new that I can go and research and, and try to learn more what they're all about. Yeah, well, he's a wonderful man, wonderful individual as well. Now, this will go back to what we were talking about in the pre-interview, but let's talk books. So is there a specific book that's had a major impact on you as a founder and really just as a person? And this can be a business book or it can be a personal book that influenced how you view the world? You know, from a business point of view, Andrew Carnegie, the How to Win Friends and Influence Other People, mm-hmm. that is, although it's dated, it was written, I don't know, when in the 40s, 50s, 60s. It's a very interesting book in that there's a lot of interesting ideas. And if you're working around farmers, it's a great book to read because you know, a lot of the principles taught in that book still hold today. And I encourage everyone to read it. I mean, again, it is dated, terribly dated, but it is a very good book to read. Yeah, I think I stole this from someone else, but they call it like a, a quake book. And that's a, a book that kind of you know, just rattles your view of the world and, and how you think about the world. And that was definitely one of those books for me, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. When I was you know, 19 years old, I read that and like instantly, like just a lot of the world made sense. And and that's, you know, to this day that you know, still has influenced how I interact with and engage with people and build relationships with people. So such a good book and, and such a classic. Yeah, matter of fact, um, when we hire, you know, I guess people directly out of college, I buy them a book. I buy them that book and tell them, read this. That's awesome. It's a good book yeah. to read. It is. Now let's talk about Sabanto. So can you tell us the origin story behind the company? Okay. So I had left Climate in 2018. I really didn't know what I was going to do. So believe it or not, I went back to college and I chipped away at my PhD. So I'm about halfway through my PhD and I'll be honest with you, I don't think I'll ever finish it. But nonetheless, the ambition was there at the time. And I just thought long and hard about autonomy and agriculture. And I started looking at the talents that are required to implement autonomy and agriculture. Obviously, you need communications, you need control, you need hardware development, you need um, front-end, back-end development, which, which I'm not a front-end, back-end developer. But I decided most of the constituents that are required, plus the egg background, I had, and I decided that someone's going to do this and it might as well be me. So in October of 2018, I decided that I'm going to do this. And the first thing I did was I went and leased a JCB 4220, which is a 220 horsepower tractor. And I went and bought an 18 row, 20 inch planter, spent the winter writing software, putting hardware together. Then I went and got a CDL, you know, a truck, like a license to operate a semi and threw it on the back in the spring of 2019. I threw it on the back of a drop deck trailer with a Peterbilt 389. And I went from state to state 
lined up a bunch of farmers and went state to state. And, you know, I wanted to get some experience as to what it would take to plant autonomously. And I learned a lot in terms of path planning and logistics and control and monitoring of tractors and whatnot. And then I closed a series seed round in 2019, and I went back to Chicago and hired five of the best engineers I knew that could help me pull this off. Ruby and Dury, who's now my CTO, and, and Corey Spady, who's my VP of product, and then three other horses, uh, you know, engineers who I could throw at any problem. And throughout 2019 and 2020, what we did was we're trying to become a full stack provider, meaning that we are capable of doing practically every field operation that is required in row crop agriculture. And so we were disking, we were uh, doing tillage, we were rototilling, we were planting, we were cultivating, we were rotary hoeing, we were tine weeding, we were doing applications, we were trying to do as many field operations as we possibly can. And we were also uh, working with the military mowing as well. Uh, we had gotten a contract with the Air Force down in Scott Air Force Base. And then throughout 2022, we thought, okay, so we, we have all this, we know what to do. We've done a lot of development on our front end, the back end, our embedded system and hardware and communications. You know, we have all this down now, let's productize this. So 2022, the majority of 2022, we were spent productizing it, giving it the ability to hand it off or let other people deploy autonomy into their operations. and. I closed on a Series A, $17 million Series A in June of 2022. And now what we're doing is we're going to market. So we built up a dealer distributor network and, you know, we're doing training. We're going through certifications and activities like that. And now you can actually buy an autonomy system built by us. Wow. And what's the rough cost on the system? You know what? It'll be affordable. I mean, let me tell you, you know, our stance right now, you know, we're obviously we're trying to fix the labor problem in agriculture. There's just a lack of labor. Every farmer I talk to, it's not the cost of labor, it's the lack of labor. And the other thing we're trying to do is we believe that autonomy is going to take horsepower in the other direction. You look at some of these large 500 plus horsepower tractors, they're well over a half a million dollars. And they only get used maybe 300 hours per year. And what we're trying to do is we believe autonomy is going to take horsepower in the other direction. And we're focused more on smaller, you know, sub 200 horsepower tractors and having them work 24 seven. And, you know, when you get down to that, you know, obviously cheaper tractors, we're developing an autonomy system that will be, I guess, correlated with the cost of the equipment as well. So it'll be lower cost. Got it. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And now, can you just talk us through the product? Because I think unlike a lot of the other companies that I've seen, you guys aren't selling the full tractors that are yeah, these robot tractors. It's an add-on to existing tractors, right? So can you just talk us through what that looks like for you know, the buyer's perspective and, and the farmer who has the existing tractor? Certainly. And let me talk about the Kubota M5, because that's the first model that we're coming out with. So there's certain components that are required on that. First and foremost is a hydraulic valve. 
because that tractor does not come with auto steer and there's no way to, I guess, autonomously move the wheels left or right. So we add our own hydraulic valve that we pick up off the shelf. We do put a wheel angle sensor on it as well because we need feedback as to where the wheels are at any given time. We put actuators on for the three-point hitch and brakes. And then it's the throttle is electrically controlled as is the shuttle. And then we put a GPS receiver on it, cellular antennas, and then a controller that we manufacture. And I forgot cameras and a LiDAR system. And how long does that take to set up on the tractor? It takes about four hours. Okay, wow, not bad at all. No, not bad at all. And our tractors can still be operated manually as well. You know, if you look at some of the tenants or the principles when I started the company, obviously the first one was... You know, we peaked in horsepower and we think it's going to go lower. The second thing is, I don't think autonomy, even though I love autonomy and we're pushing for it, I don't think it's an all or nothing proposition, meaning that there are some times when the tractor, you know, can be used most efficiently manual. And I, I go to the example of you have cruise control on your car. Nobody uses cruise control to back it out of the garage. And there are times when I don't want to pull my phone out. I just want to jump on this thing and move it from point A to point B. And meanwhile, tractors are kind of the Swiss Army knives of agriculture. And they they do a lot more than just field operations. So we feel that the future is still going to have, tractors are still going to have seats of steering wheels. They'll be lower costs because they'll be lower horsepower, but they still will have be capable of being operated manually. Mm, fascinating. Yep. And I know you've mentioned it there, and yeah, I have to at least ask about it. So whenever you talk about autonomy or robots, even if it's in industries where there's a labor shortage, there's always that question of, you know, is this going to displace workers? And, and I think that's the narrative that you see in the media a lot. So how do you navigate that conversation? And, and what are your views there when it comes to, you know, is this potentially going to you know, take away jobs from people, even though there is a, a labor shortage today? You know, in the future, is this going to take away jobs? Yes, there's a labor shortage. Is it going to take away jobs? I am not the cause. I am the effect, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times I talk to farmers and they say, yeah, you're taking away our jobs. And then I ask them, well, how many kids do you have? Well, I have two. Well, why don't you have 10? Why don't you have 12? I grew up in a rather large family. I had 56 first cousins and uh, I'm kind of an oddity. You know, if you... you Anyone under 20 doesn't have that many first cousins. Um, families aren't, aren't as large as they were. Opportunities are elsewhere. And I am not the cause of this lack of labor, this labor shortage. I'm the effect. Mm, makes a lot of sense. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. And what type of adoption are you seeing now with farmers? Uh, I'm seeing really good adoption. I mean, there's a lot of opportunities for us, especially in the organic market, because a lot of farmers, one of the reasons why they 
do not switch to organic is just the, the labor requirements. If they're a conventional farmer, you know, they plant, they may do some tillage, but they, then they plant and then they do some sort of application for pesticides and then they harvest. Whereas the organic grower, you know, they have to do tillage, then they plant, then they get a time weed, then they rotary hoe, rotary hoe, rotary hoe, then they cultivate, cultivate, cultivate. So they're covering the grounds so much more. And a lot of conventional farmers, there's a lot more margins in organic. It's harder, but it's, you know, all our uh, fathers or grandfathers, organic farmers, if you want to get right down to it. But, you know, the problem is they just don't have the manpower or the time to switch over to organic. So we see a lot of opportunities there, organic farmers coming to us and say, I can't stand cultivating. If you could cultivate for me just day in and day out, you know, this would be, you know, life-changing for me. And do you see farmers, you know, just generally speaking, being open and, and receptive to new technology, or do they tend to steer away from new technology and be rather late adopters to it? You know, there's this misnomer out there that farmers and people have this picture of farmers in their mind, like, you know, they're not very technically adept or they're technically inept, but that is so far from the truth. There's some of the more progressive technology adopting people you will ever meet. And if you look at GPS being used for auto guidance, you know, farmers have been doing that since when 2000, you know, the, the early it was it was quite popular on farms. And, you know, the adoption rate of GPS guidance was, I mean, I can't quote you a number, but it seems like five years, you know, when it just hit the market and five years later, all of a sudden, you know, like 80% of the tractors out there had GPS guidance systems on them. So I think farmers are, are very adaptive to technology. And what are some of those other misconceptions that you think are out there about farmers? So being uh, you know, not familiar with technology or not comfortable with technology, it sounds like a big one. What are some of those others just from your experience? There's some of the nicest people you will ever meet. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, they are. They're truly salt of the earth people. And, you know, what's kind of funny about farming is it's really not an occupation. It's a lifestyle for them. And it doesn't matter if they make money or not. They're still going to be a farmer. And I can't explain it other than it's just a lifestyle for them. You know, the other thing, too, is what always surprised me about farmers, too, is if they have land and they have equipment and they have, you know, a lot of their money goes back into their operations. And believe it or not, they're fairly high net worth individuals because, you know, they're all business owners when you get right down to it. And you sit with a farmer and he's got a half a million dollar tractor. And I know a lot more farmers with half million dollar tractors than, you know, in the Midwest with half million dollar houses, right? <laughs> it's a very interesting culture that I think people should uh, witness at least once. And when we look at that culture or just farming in general, what do you think it's going to look like 10 years from now? And how is the industry going to change? Well, I think the most ignored problem in agriculture is the age of the farmer. And I give this statistic all the time. 3.4 million farmers in the United States, one third of them are over the age of 65. 
And if you want to have an uncomfortable conversation, the CDC hasn't pegged at age 77 for their lifetime, right? So 12 years from now, one third of the farmers we know today are going to be gone. And what's even more frightening is another million farmers, almost a third, are between the ages of 55 and 65. So 22 years from now, two-thirds of the farmers we know today are going to be gone. Now, the average age of the farmer is like 59, and it's gradually increasing. And it's not one year, you know, it's not, it's not going to be 60 this year. It was 59 last year. It's gradually increasing. You know, and that's what the USDA tells. But I think it's kind of a flawed statistic in that, you know, there's a lot less years between ages 77 and 59. Farmers die with their boots on, right? <laughs> there's a lot less years between 77 and 59 versus, you know, 22 and 59. And if you look at the statistic, for every farmer, kid that becomes a farmer or claims that as their occupation to leave the industry. So right now it's two to one, every kid that comes in to leave the industry. Now to answer your question though, if you look down, you know, look into the crystal ball, I think agriculture is going to change drastically just because of the lack of farmers. And if you want to look at land prices, or if you own a farm, let's say your parents, you know, passed on and left you a farm, I think it might be hard to to rent it because, you know, there's just a lack of farmers out there. Now, you start to see some companies that are buying up farming operations. And, but I think it's going to be hard to scale because land is so expensive and you're going to need a hell of a lot of capital to go out and buy, you know, become a corporate farmer if you have to buy all the land. So I think it's going to be interesting to see just where this all ends up. But one thing I do know that they don't make farmers anymore as much as they should. And I'm not sure how we're going to make up for that. And is the industry as a whole making a big push to try to you know, encourage people to be farmers and encourage more people to go down that path, even if it's not a, a path that they knew earlier in their lives? Well, Brett, I've never met a first-generation farmer. I've heard they're out there, but I've yet to meet them. Um, and I always say that I think our guidance counselors, you know, lied to us when they said you can be anything you want. You can't be a farmer because the capital required to start farming is extreme. And if you want a, a tractor that's worthy of, you know, let's say, far, well, first of all, you got your, you have to get your hands on. You know, you probably need a minimum 1,000, 1,500 acres if you want to be a full-time farmer. When the average in the U.S. right now is 423 acres, something, something like that. Well, you, you need 1,500, you know, let's say 1,000 acres, right? Conventionally, you'll need a 250 horsepower tractor. So that's, you know, a quarter million dollars. You know, probably another 100,000 for a tillage rig. You know, you probably pick up a planter for 120,000. Combine, that's probably 200 grand as well. You're going to need bins. <laughs> you know, it just starts to add up and add up. And it's really difficult. The only way you can start farming is if, you're, if your parents farmed. What does that mean then for the industry? Like 10, 20 years from now, is all farming just going to be owned by these big like private equity firms that you know, no one knows who they are and they just own these massive, massive operations? Or like, where do you think this really ends up? Is it all just going to get consolidated? 
I don't know if it can even get consolidated because, I mean, if you look at lands going for, you know, I've seen some land right now at $23,000 per acre. And if you go into just, let's say, just take a typical county that has 300,000 acres, you know how much money that is just to own all the farmland in a county? So then they're going to have to turn around. They're going to have to rent it, right? So someone else is going to own it. Then you're going to have to, well, good luck buying all that 300,000 acres. So they're going to have to rent it from people. And, you know, I think it, it might turn out to be a, a buyer's market if you own farmland. And the problem is, is it's just a logistical nightmare because, you know, if you got, you know, fields all over the, you know, spanning three or four counties, Ay, ay, ay. I don't know. I, I don't know. I've looked into the crystal ball and, and I don't know how it's going to end. Yeah, no worries. And I appreciate you being candid with that and, and not giving us you know, something that you were just making up. Now, let's ask just a, a couple of questions here to wrap things up. So what excites you most about the work you get to do every day? Obviously, I can tell from your voice and, and how you speak that you love what you're doing. So what is it specifically that you love so much? You know what? Every so often, I sit in a meeting or I see something and I just think to myself, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I know this may sound silly, but the other day I saw an installation manual that one of my engineers made. And it is essentially the manual for installing an autonomy kit on a Kubota M5. And I just thought to myself, my God, I mean, we're at a point now in the company's life where we have an actual installation manual. And, you know, a while back, I was watching one of my engineers. They were, we were doing FCC compliance testing and Canadian testing as well. And I'm just thinking to myself, you know, we, we had the wherewithal. We had the uh, ability to actually pass FCC testing. And so it's just to see the progress in the company. And I know it's these little things, but they have to be done. And... And when I see progress like that, I get kind of excited. I really enjoy it. Nice. I love that. Now, last question here for you. Let's zoom out three years into the future. What does the company look like? We're going to be supporting farmers and our dealers across the U.S. And we're going to have hundreds of systems out there. They're going to be on multiple tractor models, makes and models. And we're going to be we're going to be a platform thereby which others can develop upon. I think one of the problems in agriculture today is it's very proprietary, it's very closed. And what we want to do is we want to give others the ability to add or I guess contribute to agriculture. There's a lot of implement companies out there that are really innovative, and what's stopping them from instrumenting or creating technology on their implements is just the proprietary nature of agriculture today. And I, I want to do something about that as well. Wow. Super cool. All right. Unfortunately, we are up on time. I, I'd love to keep you on and, and keep asking you hundreds of questions here. But we're <laughs> before we do, if people want to follow along with your journey, where's the best place for them to go? You can go to our website, sabantoag.com or follow us on Twitter at sabantoag. Awesome. Craig, thank you so much for coming on, sharing your story and, and talking about everything that you're building. This has been super fun and super interesting. And I wish you the best of luck in executing on this vision. Thanks a lot, Brett. I appreciate it. And thank you for having me on this 
No problem. Let's keep in touch. 